0: Please be seated. I have to say that I am excited, just like uh, just we kind of all felt that buzz at the moment of that song. Um, I'm excited about this series, and I'm anticipating that this is exactly the book we need to go through. Not just because I thought of it, because I I think I had a Holy Spirit moment that says you need to do that part of the Bible. All right, back in August, and. Um, so I'm excited to see what that is. But i got to tell you first, um, got to kind of show you a little contrast to the world around us so that we can really see. It's like Paul says in the book of Philippians, which we're going to be looking at. He says in chapter 2 that when you live the way of Jesus, you shine like stars in the darkness, like the, going outside and seeing the stars. So i got to talk about the darkness a little bit. Because maybe this is a well daw to you, and maybe it dawned on you, because you're probably smarter than me. But a couple of years ago, it suddenly dawned on me that our cultural age, our cultural moment, is just flat-out depressed. It's discouraged. It's bummed out. It's got no hope. It's dystopian. You know what that means? I just learned what that means a little while ago. That means the hope is gone, poof! There's no hope, and it's not really exciting. It's just about bucket up and just... Deal with it, because life stinks and there's nothing on the other side. That's kind of what we sort of educated ourselves into. Not us, but we as a culture and as a world, right? And I'm not pointing fingers at anybody, with the possible exception of Netflix. Um, And please understand me, I've got Netflix. Watched it last night. But what was interesting to me is this week, USA Today did an op-ed piece, an opinion piece. USA Today. Now understand, USA Today is a part of this cultural revolution that says, let's shove all Judeo-Christian ethics and morals off the table. Only problem is, okay, what is your moral system going to be? Well, we haven't figured that out yet. Okay? USA Today published this op-ed piece, and here it is. Netflix can't be trusted. Duh. It's a choice of content proves it has turned its back on families. Very interesting article, and it's just focusing on Netflix, because Netflix is the granddaddy of them all, of all the streaming content and all the networks. You know, they're kind of trying to do the same thing, stream content. And when you stream content, the FCC rules don't apply, so you can... um you can, you know, use the language and put the scenes in that you would cut out otherwise for a general population. And, and there's been some studies on what's coming out in terms of the content on cable and on streaming set, uh, platforms like um, Netflix and Amazon. And specifically, last fall, a group called the Parents Television Council did a massive national research study. And this is a council that is not partisan, Democrat or Republican, and it is not religious, there's one pastor, an African American man, on their board, but it's not religious in any other way, shape, or form. But, but, What they studied, they they studied children and the result of streaming and what they're they're experiencing because here's what they believe. They believe that it's been proven that what they take in through the tube is damaging and is destructive. Not only to them, but they're sort of like the canaries in the coal mine in the old days. You know, where they bring the canary into the coal mine and the canary would smell the gas before the human beings would and the canary would freak out and hopefully everybody would run out and grab the canary as they went and before the thing exploded, Right? And they discovered that children, with regard to this stuff and, and what we're entertaining ourselves with and what we're educating ourselves with, therefore, uh, they have started giving off a warning. And, and let me just tell you some of the results of that, that study while we're on this uh, dystopian age that we live in. They, they discovered that so much of the content is flat out that. It's just dystopian and it's depressed. That Their study was titled, Over the Top or Race to the Bottom. And they found that in Netflix specifically, 1% of the content is G, general population. Only 8% of the uh, content is PG, you know, stuff like, you know, the cartoon uh, Prince of Egypt, that was a PG one. And 60%, 62% of it was mature audiences only, anything from R all the way up. And what's crazy is Netflix has taken this and shoved it out of control all the way into putting porn on their site. For example, last year, about a year and a half ago, they had a series, maybe you've heard about it. If you've got teenagers, you've probably heard about it. It's called 13 Reasons Why. You know what the 13 Reasons are about? 13 Reasons are about why you'd want to commit suicide. And after this series started, you know what? They found Google searches for how to commit suicide went way up. Connected? Seems. They had emergency room visits by people who attempted, young people who attempted to to commit suicide went way up. As soon as this show came out. And they just said, oh, no, you don't have to watch it. Parents should keep track of it and just kind of let it go. That's the age in which we live. There's also, like I said, porn, not just porn, but child porn on it. I mean, I don't know how many shows that, that I started watch that are based here in America. It used to be when we lived in Canada, it was like, you know, don't watch British TV, kids. Don't watch Canadian TV. Now that's the stuff that's better. But I don't know how many shows I've watched. We go, oh, can't watch that one, right? But this one show that just came out, and I'm not, don't search for it. I'm, I'm just going to label it. It's called Desire. It's got child porn in it. I mean, how could you get by with that? You see, we do live in an age, now that I've depressed you along with the age, that is very depressed and dystopian, and this is what it is, and supposedly we're told by the people that create this garbage that somehow, that's just reflecting the culture and so on, that's well, not where I live, but that's, that's sort of the sense that's in the culture today. And that's why the contrast is why I'm so excited and anticipating that how helpful to our church community, our church family, that this book is going to be, and to the church in this age, that, that it's not really a letter, a book, it's a letter that Paul wrote 2,000 years ago to a church in Philippi called Letter to the Philippians, because it's all about living the way of Jesus and living the way of hope, and it's resilient. It's irrepressible in its joy. In Adam, don't, doesn't something in you go, you know, that's what I want? I mean, if, if you think about it, if the way of Jesus is really all that, if that's what we were created for, if, if this longing for uh, life to be lived that even people that don't believe in God still have in them, in them and it's like, you know, there's gotta be a better way of living and I wanna make my life this and that and so forth, even though we can't really make it that way. But, but if, that's, if that's innate in all of us, you gotta ask, where did that come from? And if that's really the path to follow, then you, you would think that it's something that can be lived beyond circumstances, right? And that's what the faith that we have is, tr- is about. That's what happens in here, and that's what happens in this faith community, that you're able to live beyond your circumstances. That's, that's not to say or to put down people who struggle with depression. I mean, hats off to you. And by the way, you're not alone. Everybody, Every Sunday, according to t- statistics, there's 30% of us have struggled with depression at some point. Okay, so so, we're here together, we're in this together. That's not to put that down. It's not to put down people who've got tough circumstances. It's not to deny tough circumstances, because I don't know, you know, most of us are Christians, Jesus followers probably. I bet you've noticed the pain doesn't go away, the struggles don't go away when you become a Christian. It's not like God waves a magic wand. But what Christians know is those painful, difficult circumstances, just like Paul's got painful, difficult circumstances when he's writing Philippians, he's in prison even though they don't go away, they don't get the best of us either because we know they're not ultimate. They're not the end. They're not. The, and, and something about that just goes, ah, that's what the life I want. That's what I'm longing. And, and that longing was put there by, by, by God himself because here's the reality. If the way of Jesus really is the way of Jesus, you would expect it to be resilient, wouldn't you? You'd expect it to be irrepressible in some way, shape, or form, but there's things we got to know about how we receive that, how God gets it to us, how he delivers it to us, and that's what the book of Philippians, or I should say the letter of Philippians, is all about. So turn there with me in, in, in Philippians, and uh, as, we, as we're doing that, I just want to kind of open up for you uh, Sort of the, the the overview of it, and 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 what we're going to see, and what we're up to, and the setting, and so forth, and just you know, kind of keep it in your lap, and 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 know that it's there for a moment. You know, it'd be nice if you could receive the scripture by osmosis and put it up, but you can't. But that's okay. You just kind of feel it. Oh, thank you, God, for giving me this letter, even though we haven't gone through it yet. Um, and so, but but what what Philippians is is it's a. Um, it's a book that, or a letter that Paul writes to the church uh, in Philippi, and it's all about the way of Jesus. If, you, if I first uh, realized that this was the book we should go through when we read through it and loved this book. And love this book if you've been following along, reading through it with us, and, and, you know, I don't want guilt to be in the air right now if you haven't. Okay, blow it away. But go find the, the reading plan and, and finish the, years, uh, the year strong and start with September 17th tomorrow and finish out the New Testament. You can read the rest of it later. Just, that's okay. Just, just, just do that. But, but when we read this in August, I was, uh, I was struck by it. And I also was struck by, you know, if you've, if you've been reading it on the YouVersion app, uh, there's embedded in there those uh, Bible project videos. And, and by the way, the Bible project is done right here in Portland. Tim Mackey, who's the narrator of those things, who's so insightful, and he writes them, he's a pastor, theologian, and Bible teacher right here in Portland, and now it's gone around the world, because, you know, have you noticed how how insightful those are? It kind of gives you an aha moment before you even read the book. And in that video for Philippians, he said, you know what? Philippians is all about the way of Jesus, living the Jesus life, Here, now, regardless of your circumstances. In fact, he summarizes it this way. See if this doesn't just kind of tug at your heart a little bit. He says, Philippians is a unique window into Paul's heart and mind. He saw his life as a reenactment of Jesus' story. That's kind of cool. His awareness of Jesus' love and presence gave him hope and humility. That's more than cool. Knowing Jesus is deeply personal and transformative. It changes everything. That's super cool. Doesn't doesn't it just kind of say, man, I want some of that. Well, that's, that's why we're going to go through this together today. And, and just for a moment, just to kind of give you a little bit of history, all right? And I know some of you don't like the history, but just 90 seconds, it'll change your life, really. We're going to just get the setting for this of where Paul is. I'm going to show you this map here. Paul is, is writing from a place where he's in prison, as I've already said, and we're not really sure where that is, but Philippi is up here. There it is. If you get sick when you see my little red dot, close your eyes. Fli- Philippi is up here. There's a place over here uh, near Smyrna in, in Asia Minor called Ephesus. That's one of the places he possibly could have been writing. For 1,700 years, we thought it was Rome. But then it became apparent uh, that it couldn't be for a lot of reasons, which I won't go into. You can look it up. But in another place down here on the coast of Israel today is a place called Caesarea. That's another place he was in prison that it could have been, okay? But, but here's the thing. Paul's writing to a church that he loves because Philippi there was the first town that he started a church in. It was the first place that, that, that he, he'd done this. And if you, we don't know exactly where he wrote it, but what we do know is what happened when he started the church. If you look this up, you can write this down, Acts 15 and Acts 16. At the end of Acts 15 and then all of Acts 16 tells us what happened in Philippi when he showed up there. And two things that are cool for us and very practical outcome for us, and I'm just gonna mention those two. At the end of chapter 15, what's interesting is the whole thing that started Paul moving across the ocean here, or across the Aegean Sea to Philippi, was an argument with a fellow believer, with a fellow missionary guy named Barnabas, whose name, by the way, means "son of encouragement," and the argument was around John Mark, the guy that wrote the book of Mark, because he was, John Mark had gone with them on some other journeys, and then he bailed on them and freaked out, and left, and went back. And Barnabas says, "Well, let's take John Mark on this new one. I'm sure he's changed everything." And Paul says, "No, no, no, no. You don't mess with Paul, man. You don't do that." And he says, "No, I'm not going to do it." So they split up. It was—it says it was an intense argument. They split up, so Barnabas and Mark went one way, and Paul and Silas went another way, and they went to, to Philippi. And when they got there, they went down by the water where they, they you know, the community was doing their work and so forth. And they ran into a lady who was uh, uh, had a business in dyeing cloths, and her name was Lydia, and she became the first convert in Philippi. But here's the significance of that for us. She's the reason, she's the place, and this going across the sea to Philippi is the reason that the gospel got to Europe, which eventually swept all of Europe and eventually jumped the pond, as they say in Britain, and came to us. This is this moment for us. This is what you see. And here's what Paul has to say to these people that he's now somewhere else, but he remembers those days of, of the, when that church first got started, it says, Paul and Timothy, which is his spiritual son, remember, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people. Holy people could also be translated saints. Because according to the New Testament, saints aren't just people who are beatified by the Vatican, they're anybody that follows Jesus and has had their life turned, uh, transformed by Jesus. So all of, this, all of the people that are a part of the church he's talking about. To all God's holy people in Christ Jesus in Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he, he begins right off the bat by talking about how much affection he has for these people. Look what it says in verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. And, all, and, and in all your, my prayers for all of you, I always pray with you. And because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So he starts right off by saying, I remember you in my prayers. I have this affection for you, which I just have to say, I understand as a pastor of this church. Because I love this church, and I was a part of starting it too. I'm not the Apostle Paul, don't get me wrong, I'm not getting grandiose here. But there's this affection for it, and, and that's what he, he's saying, and so, so I understand that. And what's interesting is it's every time he remembers them, he has joy in his prayers. Do you see that? And, and that's why he starts like that. I just want to pull out two words that he says here uh, in verse 4 and one in verse 5. Let's start with the one in verse 5 and then work our way back. The the word in verse 5 is the word partnership. And this is a word in in the Greek language that you've heard before. If you've heard, you know, Bible preachers like me who use the original language, blah, blah, blah. You've heard this word probably many times. It's the word koinonia. It's the word we translate fellowship. And I got to say, what we think of fellowship today I kind of would rather use a different word for koinonia. That's why I like participation, some others. But here's why. Fellowship is good. I'm not dissing fellowship at all. But we've kind of reduced fellowship to coffee and donuts in our mind. And please understand me. I am not against coffee and donuts. But it's so much richer and so much more. It's, it's like another word that's almost overused today in the last few years. It's the word community. This is real, live community of people together. That's participation. You guys are all in. Do you notice all the alls and always and stuff like that? Even from the first day till now? He's saying, you've always been all in. And that gives me joy. And that's the source of it. You see, this, this koinonia it dates back to the beginning of the Bible, Adam and Eve. Remember, we went through Genesis 1 and 2 a, a, couple, a year and a half ago, two years ago. And what we saw was that God, when he created the world, he kept saying, that's good. Ooh, that's really good. Mm, I, I am so good. That is good. And then in chapter 2, in verse 18, he says one thing that's not good. Remember what it is? Not good that man, generic man now, Should be alone. Now, in that specific case, obviously, it was just man-man because he hadn't created Eve yet, and so he creates Eve. Now, I know that's about marriage. I know that's about the relationship of love and all that, but it's about so much more than that in terms of the community of the love of Jesus. And that's what Paul's referencing here. He's talking about this community. It's why we gather consistently. That's why we constantly want to be together week after week, every seven days. Have you noticed Sunday gathering comes every seven days? I notice. That's why we put it in our mission statement. We will build real community where the joy of the Lord can be found. And that's the thing he says that drives the whole thing. Look at it, he says, I always pray with joy. Why? Because he remembers what's going on. You see, for Paul... Joy isn't just circumstantial. It's not just because my circumstances are great, because they're not great right now. He's in prison. He's tied to a, 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 a Roman soldier. Every time he raises his hand to make a point, the soldier's arm goes up. You know what I mean? It's that kind of thing. He can't just go to the kitchen and get something when he wants it. And, and so he's, he, it's probably house arrest, but that's, that's still... Not the greatest circumstances, but that's not it. What gives him joy is the gospel working its way out and into his life and into the community of the church, in this case specifically the Philippians. And every time he sees that that's what's happened, he gets excited and he gets anticipatory and he gets joy-filled that, hey, this can be different. This isn't just some dystopian nightmare. This is hope. Things are going to be different in the end of this. And God is good, and look at all the goodness he's doing. It's the same kind of thing that when we talk about the gospel, and you've already heard it on the video today. When I get excited about it, when I see, and you probably do too, it's God using our church for his good news. Did you know that OEA, Outer East Daughter House, you know, did you know that they uh, did that play at Easter you know, about Jesus' death and resurrection? Remember that one? Did you know that one of the characters in that play, one of the actors in that play came to us from another church but wasn't a believer in Jesus yet? By the end of the play, he was and went back to his church to become that kind of person. See, that gives joy to that. Or, or those kids, I got to tell you, man, those kids, when they were doing those, those light sticks at VBS, <laughs> they were doing it to celebrate the resurrection and then sing that song. I mean, I was in the back over here. It was like giving me chills down the spine. And then I, waited, I realized, wait, my grandson's in the front row. So I ran all the way around and tried to get a picture of him, and I did. All you see is a stick going, whoa, 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 whoa. but anyway, but but there's just this sense of joy, ch- childlike joy of saying, "Woohoo, Jesus, way to go!" And that's the gospel joy that he's talking about. Why does that get stuffed down? Where did that go? How come when we grew up, we left that behind? I mean, that's you know, Sunday mornings being together, the anticipation of that. And, and here's here's the point that I think he's trying to make about joy, and it says, joy is deeper than happiness, just as desire is deeper than lust. You see, desire, the desire for him that God puts in us, it's deeper than just, hey, I want that. I'd like to have you in my life once in a while, right? That's what lust is. It's not necessarily sexual. It is, but it's not just that. It's, I want, I want, I want. And joy and happiness are the same way. Joy is deeper than happiness. Because you know what? Happiness can go away like that. Even in Happy Valley. (laughs) Where you get your tax bill, and I was riding high. Somebody runs into your favorite car, or maybe it's self-inflicted. Never done that. Or someone burgles your house, and they steal $1,200 $1,200 tools, $1,500 tools are from your shed and break into your car a little while later and steal some stuff from your back patio. That's not very joyful, happy. But the joy can carry on, right? That's what he's saying. It's beyond circumstances. And I get so excited about that. And here's what I, I think. Okay, this is what I think, but I think I'm, I'm on good biblical grounds for it. And I may be wrong, and you can believe something else if you want to. Of course, you'll be wrong. But anyway, um, as the culture goes further and further down this dystopian path, and it will, this is going to become more and more special to true believers in Jesus Christ. Being together around the Scriptures and around the love of Jesus and showing the love of Jesus to each other that's what's going to make the difference, all the difference in the world. And people are just going to say, where did they get that? Paul's going to tell us in just a minute. But all I'm saying is, is you may be a person that says, you know, no, 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 no. I, you know, if I get there once a month, or and I'm not just saying Sunday morning, but being with other believers sometime during the week, every week. You might be saying, I, yeah, I... I come once a month, That's all I need. I don't really need it that much. I get a little juice for the week and I get a little juice for the month, and I'm good. Okay, it's all right. I just I don't, I'm just not seeing that I need it. And all I would say to you, if that's really the honest truth in your heart, is the words of the great theologian Yoda <laughs> You will be. All right? As the culture gets crazier and. As this moment untethers itself from the Word of God more and more and more, that's just the way it's going to go. And I'm not getting all, you know, over-spiritualizing. I'm just saying you can see it unfolding before your eyes. That's why Paul says, you're all in, and, you, and I remember. And every time I remember, it just picks me up, and, I'm, and we're back. It's not just a happy place. It's a real happy place. It's a happy place on Steroids. In fact, that's exactly the, the, this is exactly the big idea. Right up front here, the big idea of the book of Philippians that Paul is trying to get across. You could say it like this. You can find the way of resilience, which is, Paul's, which is my term for Paul's description of joy. Because the way he describes joy in the rest of the book, it's like a resilience. It's an irrepressibility. It keeps popping up. You know, no matter how many times you try to put down the people of God, they're like whack-a-mole. They keep popping up. You can't keep them down. So you can find the way of resilience by sharing in the deep, irrepressible joy found together with Jesus' people. And once you know that big idea, that that's the big idea, that this is where that irrepressible joy is found among Jesus' people, you begin to understand the rest of the book better and you certainly understand the rest of this passage better. Look what he says next in verse 6. This is a famous verse that oftentimes we put on our refrigerators, and I'm not dissing that. Go ahead and put it on your refrigerator, but let's take a deeper look at what it means. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, first of all, you need to understand this. If you're underlining, underline the word good work because that's code word for Paul for our salvation. This salvation that Jesus has started in you and me, the salvation is, is God's work from start to finish is what he's saying. And, and, and we need to kind of pause here and say, well, what does salvation mean? Because the way we mean salvation is, it's sort of like, you know, you pray the prayer, you become a Christian, God saves you, he wipes your sins away, and then it's often, God's almost like, hey, I'll see you when you get to heaven. I'm so glad you're part of the family. But that's, that's not the portrayal of salvation in the Scripture or in the New Testament. In fact, there are three different descriptors, three different kinds of phases or parts of salvation in the New Testament. The first one is justification. Yes, you, you commit your life to Christ. You're my Savior and Lord, Lord Jesus. And the power of his cross wipes all your sins away and brings forgiveness into your life. And then immediately the power of the resurrection starts to raise up and rise up that new creation within you and start to transform you. But it doesn't stop there. It continues to transform. And that's the second part or the second description of salvation. And that is what's happening right now in our lives as we're being transformed and become more and more like Jesus and more and more like him. And that's... That's where the real joy is found, especially when we share it together, what the gospel's doing among us. That's how you keep on going like that. And then the final one, the final way of describing salvation in the New Testament is what can be called glorification or going to glory, being in God's presence and finally getting the bodies, minds, and heart that we were originally supposed to have before sin screwed everything up. And we're back, in, and we are, in fact, God's glory at that point, because they say, look what I did again. That's good. And that's, that's salvation, and that's what we're headed for. And that's what, what Paul is describing here. And the reason I go on and on about that, especially the part about it's God's work start to finish, is we are so tempted, especially today, in a cultural moment like ours. That, you know, we Christians aren't adverse to the culture. We, we live in it. And we have to think about, okay, where am I putting my hope and trust? Where am I putting my expectations for the good work that's going to happen in me? Because it's so easy to misplace our hope and misplace our trust and put it in things like, you know, ingenuity or science or democracy, which actually we're not a true democracy. We're a representative republic, but they don't teach that in school anymore. But the reality is, is or, or put it in my own ingenuity, you know. That was a real temptation, honestly, until I was about 40, 45. Okay, I didn't really grow up that much. 50? Because <laughs> you know what? You can do the first half of anything on energy and ignorance. <laughs> and that's what I did. But you put your hope in, hey, I, I can work this out. And you know what? Those kind of ideas, rather than putting our hope and our trust in Christ to work this out and to do this good work, creeps into the church. In fact, there's evidence that has been creeping into the church for quite a while. And you know where the evidence is? It's still in those canaries in the cave uh, in the coal mine and our kids. In 2005, a book was published. Just like a lot of generational moments when there's a book published that explains a lot, there's this book published called Soul Searching uh, by Christian Smith and uh, uh, Melinda Lundquist. And they were a couple of sociologists who were just simply trying to study how teenagers uh, relate to religion in America. And it was this huge national study and then they published a book out of it. People are still unpacking this thing today because it was such a moment of, aha, that's really what's happening in the American church, specifically in the evangelical church. And they had this, this specific term, this three word phrase really, that describes what it is, at least up to that point, we are passing on to our kids. And our teenagers, in terms of their view of God and their faith and religion, whether it be by watching this or, you know, how they're taught in their church or whatever it is. And here's the phrase. It's moralistic, therapeutic deism. You might want to write that down. I think that's going to be a trivial question. Trivia question, of mine. But you go, well, what's that? Well, let me just describe it. Moralistic is a moralism. It's not necessarily moral. It's it's whatever I feel at the moment is right and wrong. Okay, then you better feel it too because, you know, you can't hurt my feelings. That kind of moralism, not really grounded in anything, therapeutic. That's uh, just saying that we live in an over-psychologized, over-Freudian culture. I'm not dissing psychology or psychiatry. I'm just saying that in our culture, in our world, just because Freud came along, everybody thinks they're a psychoanalyst. You meet me, I meet you. Immediately in our minds, we psychoanalyze that other person and peg them. We think that we've got this sort of therapeutic thing. And, you know, going to the counselor or going, which, again, nothing wrong with that. But somehow it's almost a religious rite today, even in churches. And deism. Deism is an old, 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 old heresy. It might sound good because dios is the word for God in the, in the Latin but way, way back, this idea of deism started. In fact, several of our founding fathers had this as their belief system. And the problem with deism is, is that it, it, it believes that there's a God. Deism is, is, says that by human rationale and observation of nature, you can deduce that there is a creator, there is a designer, but that's as far as it goes. The designer, the creator has created the world, wound the watch, and now he's standing off watching, and he just it's up to us to do whatever we're going to do. He's not going to have any involvement in our life. And a lot of people live that way practically, even from the church. And that's what Smith and Lundquist discovered was happening. In fact, before we leave this this topic, let me just give you the five points of moralistic therapeutic deism that Smith and Lundquist come up with. You can look these up on the internet. This one happens to come from Wikipedia, but here we go. A God, number one, a God exists who created, notice the small g, who created and ordered the world and watches over human life and earth. And that's it. So that's deism. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair. Okay, I learned that in kindergarten. To each other, as taught in the Bible and by most of the world religions. Now here's the thing. I'm pretty sure God doesn't want us to be mean. He wants us to be nice. But if that's all it is, nice can go away like that. It's sort of like happiness, right? It's got to be more than that. There's got to be an inner transformation of some kind, I would think, if it's going to be genuine. Three, central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Huh. In Happy Valley, you know, I read a study a number of years ago that the people who had the highest self-esteem, and they did this survey, the people with the highest self-esteem, you know who it was? Gang leaders in Los Angeles and New York City. (laughs) They write really good about themselves. So there you go. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve the problem. This is sort of like the vending machine view of God. Stick your money in, and out comes God's fix for your problem. And finally, good people go to heaven when they die. Well, According to scriptures, even bad people, in fact, we're all sinners against God. So sinners go to heaven if they know Jesus and he's forgiven their sins. That's how the scripture, but this, you know what this is? This is universalism. This is everybody gets in at some point somewhere and that is incredibly destructive to our faith. And even some national speakers who have come out of the the church in recent years are starting to spout this off. It's just so insipid it can't hold the water of what's going to need to be held. It can't hold the joy of what's going to need to be held as culture continues to unfold into the, and the future unfolds. It can't. And that's why the warning is going off, and that's why they wrote this book, and that's why it's so important to, do, to, to, to think about this. I mean, compare moralistic therapeutic deism to, to Philippians 1, 6, again, being confident of this, that he who began the good work from you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's not just about on your own energy and ignorance. It's not just about, you know, being confused or alienated anymore. It's not about living off the energy of our outrage or anxiety. It's about living off the inspiring power and love Of Jesus Christ. In fact, that's exactly where Paul goes next. He describes why he can be so confident of this, because it says, I'm confident that this is going to happen for you. Verse 7 It is right for me to feel this way about you, all of you. Since I have you in my heart, see how much he loves them? Whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. I can testify how. Long, how I long, okay, there's the longing, the desire, which is connected directly to the joy. We'll see that later. Testify how I long for you all with affection of Christ Jesus. This is literally the affection of Christ Jesus because this is the same word that is oftentimes translated compassion. And it doesn't mean feeling love from my heart, right? It means, it means in those days they thought the, the, the compassion came from your guts. So it's deeper. It's deep down. It's kind of like, you know, guys, when you told her, you know, I love you so much it hurts. Before you asked her to marry you, you did that, right? but Where did it hurt? It didn't hurt up here. It hurt here. And it's the same word that's used of Jesus in Matthew 9.36 when it says, he looked at the crowds and he felt affection or compassion because they were like sheep who were lost without a shepherd. That's what he's Channeling, if you will, that's what he's he's he, he's saying is he's experiencing and he's he's feeling. You see, what he's trying to get us to understand is that joy is located in the people of God. Joy makes a resilient community possible. It makes resilient churches possible. It makes resilient communities of the people of faith possible. And, and so. What he's really saying is, is that joy doesn't make you just make you feel tingly all inside. Joy actually strengthens your life and gives you hope for the future and kills off that dystopian nightmare thing. Joy, God's kind of joy, Jesus' kind of joy does that because it's based in his cross and his resurrection and in the power of love that comes out of that. And so he's, he, it's very similar to what Nehemiah stood up. Remember with Nehemiah chapter eight? The people were just freaking out and flipping out, and because they realized, oh man, we're not what we should be, and so forth. Nehemiah stands up and says, "Wait, wait, 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 wait. The joy of the Lord is your strength." when you 've got this joy that paul 's talking about or the joy that nehemiah isn 't talking about, it not just makes and not just you know makes you feel better, it actually makes you strong and, and sends you out moving forward with with hope and joy into the future and peace that God knows what he 's up to in your life beyond the circumstances and so Paul describes where we get this strength from and this joy from verse nine and this is my prayer that you that your love may abound more and more, we'll come back to that, in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and what it may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Again, the day of Christ is when Jesus comes back because it's happening. But I want you to look at this word discern. Some translations say approve. That works too. But it means this is the proof of the pudding. This is the proof of your faith. This is, this is the testing, but it proves that it's real and the joy is there and it's going to stay there and it's not going anywhere. It's not like fleeting happiness. You, and the word he's using here for discern is a metallurgical uh, word where they would test you know, a coin, make sure it's truly the metal that it says it is. It's not some tin thing or something. Or um, you know, how they would purify metal. And and, and the way to purify metal is you got to turn up the heat. It it um, it's probably not done this way. I don't know um, if it is done this way or not anymore. But uh, purifying metals like gold and silver and so forth is probably done by a machine. But I've seen how this sort of metal purification process works because I was a plumber's helper in college, and the plumber made me do all the plumbing work while he had his lunch and snacks. He's he a nice guy. I mean, he's all right, but he, he didn't want to cross him because he was just this little short little guy, but his name was Malachi McCann. Came straight from Belfast. And he had this laugh like a leprechaun that was scary all at the same time. Ha ha ha! I mean, it was like, yay, yay, yay. He he uh, was almost like Harry Potter or something. And so we were in this one house where it was an old house, it's like our house is this old. But back in the day, they didn't have the plastic, nice little pipes. I don't know if you knew this. You and construction are laughing right now. But the the waste pipes were these cast iron black things that all that goo went down for decades. And in order to remodel and to replumb the house, you had to bust those puppies open. So guess who had to go under the floor and bust them open? Malachi says, I want you to go down under the floor and bust them open. I said, okay. He said, no, wait, before you go you got to know how to put them back together. And the way you put them back together into the fittings uh, on these cast iron pipes is, in that day, you took hemp rope and you wrapped it around and stuffed it in the the fitting, and then you poured hot lead that would solidify and hold the thing together. But before you did that, you had to melt the lead. And so he says, here's the pan, here's the chunk. I said, that looks terrible. He goes, I know, but you're going to take all the impurities off of it. Otherwise, there'll be pockmarks and it'll be brittle and it won't work and they'll have a leak great. He says, oh, and one more thing. When you heat this up, be careful because it'll pop up and blow up and burn your face off. And then he did that laugh, that leprechaun laugh. So I was very, very careful, but that's exactly what happened. It came, The impurities came to the top. I scraped it off, put it over here, scraped it off, put it over here. And that's the image that Paul has in our life when the heat comes, when the circumstances, like when he's in prison. Even the heat when you're living the way of Jesus, and you know the joy and the resilience of his life, even the heat works for good to make you stronger. Not because you're a better person and you can do it, but because the same one that started the good work in you is going to finish it, and he expects you to finish it and in, in, in be in this place of protection called the community of the believers in Jesus. And that's exactly the image that he's making. In fact, He tells us exactly what we get when we're in here. He says that the reason that we're able to have this discernment or this this strength that makes us resilient is because, first of all, our love abounds more and more for each other, but the reason for that is, first of all, in knowledge and in depth. Resilience starts with strengthening your metal, so to speak, before you get into the heat, before you get into the crisis and the test. And the two things Paul says we need are knowledge which is knowledge of God's Word, which is why we do scriptural, biblical teaching the way we do on Sunday mornings. It's why we do it in the children's ministry. It's why we do it in a new ministry that's going to be launched in October called Think, Question, Believe that you're going to want to check out. It's an apologetics ministry that's going to do some teaching on why do we believe what we believe and what are the big questions, the ultimate questions of life and the ultimate questions of the Scripture and how do we come to those conclusions? That's why we do that because of knowledge, but knowledge alone is not enough. You have to have depth of insight. And i got to explain this a little bit because I think most of us think nowadays when it comes to depth, that depth is finding the secrets that no one else knows about in the Scriptures, that no one's ever discovered. deep, 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 deep. deep. Sorry, that's neo-Gnosticism. That's not following Jesus, and I'm not saying you shouldn't dig deep in the Scripture and spend plenty of time and try to get the understanding of what was going on then and read the commentary. All of that I do every week, and it's a good thing for all of us to do as Christians is to, to read it more than just the devotional, but go underneath, deep. But when Paul uses, when the New Testament uses the word deep, he is describing, it is describing not just going deep and getting those secrets that no one else knows about, but living out the things that we've discovered as truth that probably all of us know. Letting it go so deep into your life that you're living it that way. That when you make decisions, that's the, that's the way it goes. That's the truth or the, the concept that, that causes it to happen. And he's saying, that's how you get strong. It's not just the knowledge, it's the living of the knowledge. It's the practice of the knowledge, if you will. And, and that's that's what he's saying. That's a deep, deep, deep thing. And what he's trying to tell us is, the only place you're going to get that is in the community of believers. I've said that probably twenty times now. It's here that that happens. Because what happens is when you when you have knowledge, but you just you know you're going through something really tough, and it's difficult to trust the Lord. You come to this place, and there's other people that aren't going through that at the moment. They pick you up, and they've got the trust for you and carry you along. It's not that you don't believe. It's just that you need somebody helping you to practice and put one foot in front of the other, and that's why real joy is found here in this place and why it is a big deal to be gathered together, and I know one of the objections of some people is that they'll say, well, we don't really need church to be Christians. We don't really, I mean, look at China. You know, Christianity is exploding there. Their churches are being shut down. Look at Cuba. In fact, pray for the Chinese church, by the way, because this last week, the largest evangelical church in Beijing, two or 300 people, was shut down because there's a resurgence of anti-Christian, anti-religious, anti-Muslim work being done by the communists in China right now. You know why they shut that church down? Because a couple of months ago, the authorities came to them and said, We'll let you keep meeting here as long as you let us put cameras in your auditorium, in your room, so we can see if anybody's saying anything that's illegal. And, of course, their leadership team, their elders, which, like our leadership team, I'm sure they would say this. They would say, no, you can't put cameras in there to check that out. wouldn't let the government do that. Not that that would ever happen here, but pray for the church in China. But people say, well, how, you know, I don't need church. Those people are going, you, you know what? Those people meet anyway. They gather together anyway. Why? Because they know that's where the joy and the resilience and the irrepressibility of the people of God is, is when they're together and Jesus does this work in and through them together. Yes, he can do what he needs to do individually, but we need each other to help this thing work. That's what Paul is trying to say, and that's why he says your love will abound more and more and more and more and it's not just about a dis- discerning, you know, all the things that are wrong with the culture. It's not all, you know, discerning um, the, uh, you know, how to do things just right as church so people will like us. Not going to happen, all t- you know, ultimately. It's about living on joy and hope instead of on fear. It's about living not alienated anymore like so many people are today. It's not about not being confused about who we are and what our life means. And so I'm going to just kind of stop it there. I'm going to read one more verse. But we can't cover everything when we start a series like this because there's so much. But I want you to get some of that stuff because you're going to see this stuff again and again and find some new understanding, I think, about what this joy and, and, and how it happens and what happens in our lives. And the first place to start is this last verse of this passage, verse 11, where it says that we'll be, be able to discern what is best and pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And you'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Notice that, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the first thing I want you to notice out of this book, that what really happens in here when we, when we uh, grow in knowledge and depth and help each other practice and live the way of Jesus, and what happens is you get strong from the inside out because you're filled with the fruit of righteousness. I, 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 it just dawned on me this summer when I was building a little, I'm still building, a little shed out back. Well, it's a fairly large shed, a studio. It's a pastor's man cave, okay? So that's what, what I'm building, and, and I put a retaining wall up, and, and I had to dig into uh, 18 inches of solid clay. Feel my pain? Um, solid clay, and so I had to put footings down there, so I did, and, I, and when I went to get the footings, I went to Home Depot and got these bags of cement, 80-pound bags of f- cement, which I lifted fine, put it on in, and uh, what I noticed about these bags are they are so hard, I mean, they don't have water or anything in them, because if you did, the cement would be ruined. You wouldn't be able to pour it in the hole or use it anymore. But they just got this dust, this dusty, it's kind of disgusting. When you open the bag, it goes, poof everywhere. But they've got this dust packed in these bags to the point where if you punch that bag, you would break your hand. But it's just dust until you put water in it. But once you empty the dust into the wheelbarrow, mix it with water and You've got a bag that's left. You can crumble that thing up and throw it in the recycling bin. I don't know if that's what you're supposed to do, but that's what happened. And you throw it all away that way. And that's what Paul's saying here. You will be filled with the fruit of righteousness, something much better than dust. And you'll be irrepressible as a church, as a people of God, as individuals. All of that will happen. And that's why we are starting this series. That's why we are starting with this vision budget, Uh, beginning to see kind of what you saw in the video, that there's a momentum here that God's calling us to something. In fact, we've got a five-year plan that you're going to be hearing more and more about. I'm not going to tell you the whole thing right right now, and don't let five years freak you out. But this isn't about, okay, this is what we want to do, God. Will you come and bless it? This is about seeing things and picking up on things that God is already doing and asking us to be a part of. And there's some very exciting things. And I just want to show you just the first statement of it. This is a, a new thing kind of we're rolling out called a mission statement, which is different than, uh, I mean, a vision statement, which is different than a mission statement. It's, it's not just the underpinnings of what we are. It's the vision of what we see, where we see this thing going, okay? And um, I, I got to ask you, though, first of all, this is still a work in progress. This is, this is the, uh, it's going to look pretty much like this, but it's, um, it's still being kind of worked on by a couple of people, so don't tell anybody I showed you this. All right, cool, here it is. Eastridge Church. At Eastridge Church, we will take every opportunity. That's Paul's language for whatever it takes. Paul says, like we believe, too, that God divinely places people and opportunities and things in front of us. So we're gonna take every opportunity to show gospel love to the lost, lost people, and to be companions of Jesus and making resilient disciples, deep and resilient disciples. That sounds pretty exciting to me. I hope it sounds exciting to you. Because that's what we're for. And I think God's already starting to do that. And that's what we want to see in the years ahead, no matter what the culture does. So I'm going to call the band out here, and as they're coming out, let me just give you a little bit of church work homework. It's not school. Would you, would you just go home and read the book of Philippians? And if that's too much, read the first chapter. And then I want you to read four other verses over a couple of times this week. Because as we read this, we read this and love this book this week. But it is such a beautiful description of the way of Jesus and the resilience of the people of God. I just want you to get this, okay? Listen, listen to this. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 to 10. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, To show that this all-surpassing power is from God. Sounds a lot like bags of cement. Its power, though, is from God. It's not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but we are not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body, our bodies and this body of believers in Jesus Christ. That, my friends, I hope you can see, is beautiful. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would send us out of here with this love that abounds still more and more in the life of Jesus and in the way of Jesus, and may there be clarity and peace and hope ahead. And may we shine like stars in the night sky. I just thank you for this church family. I love them. I know that you love us. But I pray, Jesus, that you would take this word from that Paul wrote to the Philippians. And make it such that it just goes deep down into us and throughout our bodies and that you begin it today and send us out with the joy of the Lord that is our strength. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for making this a reality for us. And thank you for being here to teach us today. It's in your name we pray. Amen.